Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio. Welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. Don't you think Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and today we are going to be talking about how do you have tough conversations, and when you're on a journey with dementia, that happens a lot, but the cool thing about this conversation with Dr. Alan Zimmerman is that the tips he is going to give us today are relevant in all of your life. So you can use these with your spouse, with your kids and grandchildren, your neighbors, your boss, your coworkers, you name it. I just think this is going to be such a valuable conversation. Uh, Dr. Zimmerman is actually ranked in the top 5% of speakers worldwide, and he has degrees in communication and psychology. And he is a recipient of CPS, which is Certified Speaking Professional. And he is part of their Hall of Fame. So again, this is going to be a great conversation. But before I um, introduce you to Alan, I do want to just highlight Alzheimer Speaks has all kinds of free educational resources. So please visit our site, alzheimerspeaks.com. You'll also find a um, book tab, which has Betty the Bald Chicken Lessons in How to Care, which isn't specific just to dementia. It really gives us an opportunity to open up conversations, not only with our children, but any age in terms of how we care for others and how we want to be cared for as well. I also want to mention Dementia Map, which is a wonderful resource we've developed, which has over 150 categories that people can search around the world. Uh, There is a calendar of events. There's also a glossary of terms and some wonderful articles. We are building it out slowly. We're not buying lists and just putting people in. We want to make sure the people that are listed are actually going to respond to you. And you are going to find some really cool things that you've never heard of before. So check out DementiaMap.com. Now, let me go ahead and pull Alan in. Well, Alan, I am so excited to have you on the show. I have admired you for years through NSA, which is the National Speakers Association. And You know, I I was out at your house one time for a class that you taught, and I was just so impressed with you and your insights. And so I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the show to talk about 
these tough conversations that we have to deal with in life. And especially when illness hits, there can be some real challenges ahead. So, so thank you for your time today in advance. I'm pleased to be here. Absolutely. I think tough conversations are something we want to avoid, but we cannot avoid without some severe consequences. Exactly. I'm going to have you kind of introduce yourself to our audience today, if you don't mind. Yeah. My PhDs are in communication and psychology. I began my career as a university professor, did that for a number of years. I was tenured. I kept getting asked by organizations to speak to them, and I got so busy speaking, I didn't have time to do both. So I eventually left my tenure position, opened my own company, and I've been speaking around the world ever since. Wow. An impressive career, to say the least. And uh, you are in the top 5% of speakers in the world, which is just absolutely incredible. So, uh, you know, we really have a top-notch guy with us today, folks, so you're going to want to pay attention. Um, Have you ever been touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends, Alan? Absolutely. Uh, My brother, my younger brother, my one sibling died two years ago of Alzheimer's, um, suffered for seven years with that, went down and down and passed away about a year and a half ago. Uh, My father had a lighter case. My mom has a small case, but it was my brother that was severely affected. Okay. Um, Yeah, that's, it's hard to watch, especially when it's a sibling, you just you know, it's right there and it's close. Do do you ever think, what about me? Actually, I did get scared. And so I went to my uh, primary care doctor and said, here's the family history. Uh, I'm concerned. I don't think I've got any symptoms, but give me a test. And he said, absolutely. And we did 40, he said, it'll be 45 minutes. And after about seven minutes, he said, there's no need to go on. You're great. So thank the Lord. (laughs) I have uh, nothing going wrong just yet in that dimension. Well, that's good. It's I know a lot of times people get really, really worried and can stress themselves out. Some people take a, a test to see if they've got, you know, a familial gene. And um, I, I know my personal belief is I don't want to do that because your genes aren't always your destiny. You know, we probably all are filled with cancer genes. Are we going to get it or not? Who knows? But I don't want to give my brain the opportunity to go down that rabbit hole. In case of that, though, you know, my my grandma uh, had it, according to my mom, which wasn't well known. And then my mom, you know, had dementia, lived with it for 30 years. So it does cross my mind. And, you know, I'm I'm approaching uh, 65 here, you know, in another year. And, you know, my I'm seeing brain changes, definitely. And and what is it? You know, um, is it normal aging? Isn't it? So I'm I'm keeping tabs on that. But like you, I had gone in for um, testing. I was actually part of a trial that was pretty interesting for uh, a care partners to be able to go in and get tested. And I remember the first time I went in, I'm like, are you going to let me go? Because I just thought I did horrible, just horrible. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, you know, I, there was a lot I didn't complete. And they're like, Lori, we have to set these tests up for people who have photograph memories and who are geniuses. You are neither of those, but you're fine. <laughs> and I'm like, that would have been nice to know ahead of time because that extra stress doesn't help. And anyways, in my case with the testing process, I don't think, but um, yeah, it can be intimidating, you know, 
<laughs> going in and, and checking on that stuff. Well, let's let's talk about the importance of picking your fights. It's something we hear all of life, you know, especially as parents, we hear it with our peers, we hear it. And, you know, with chronic illness, there, there are always these moments in life where is it worth the fight? Is it, is it worth the discussion? I mean, you're hoping it's not going to be a fight, but when you're saying pick your fights, you kind of know that's the hole that's going down <laughs> and you need to be prepared. So why do you believe it's so important to, to address this and know this? When I'm speaking to audiences, I talk about several steps in the tough conversation process, and this is the first one, mm -hmm. that is choose your fights carefully. Uh, we've only got so much energy. You know when to fight and when to shut up, mm -hmm. when to push your point and when to pull back. So be smart about it. And I tell people there are three questions you need to ask yourself. If you can answer yes to all three questions, you've chosen your fights carefully and you have a much better chance of success than stress. Uh, the first question is, is it, uh, does a threat exist? Does a threat exist? For example, maybe somebody on your team is not doing the, their full share of the work. Mm -hmm. Does it threaten your success as a team? Perhaps it does. Or maybe someone is sharing false rumors about you behind your back. Does it threaten your credibility? Perhaps it does. If you can say, yes, a threat exists, then you go to the second question. That is, is it worth a fight? And yes, something's worth fighting for, getting more help from your family for an Alzheimer's situation and a care situation. Maybe it's worth a fight to increase your customer base, to prove your relationship with your spouse. Is it worth a fight? Other things are not worth the hassle. So choose them carefully. Is it worth a fight? I remember speaking to a group of military people at one of the Air Force bases. And one of the guys said, I've been fighting with my son on and on. He's got long hair, earrings, and I told him, this is a military family. You don't dress that way. You're a boy, not a girl, not this family. So I went round and round fighting about that. So one day he said, it dawned on me, I got a good kid. Does well in school, good in academics, athletics, no drugs, no alcohol, good kid. So I realized the more we fought, the further we drifted apart. I was losing my son over a haircut. It didn't pass the second test. It wasn't worth a fight. So he dropped that one. That's a great example. Great example. And if you can say, yeah, a threat exists and it's worth a fight. Then third question, if I fight, can I make a difference? In other words, if all your experience with that other individual, your gut, your intuition tells you there's no way they'll listen to me. Not a chance my boss will hear me out. No way my sister will pitch in and help in this situation. If you're convinced of that, then you got to let it slide. But if you say, I think there's a chance they might give me a fair hearing, there's a possibility here. You think it's possible that it just might work out. Answer all three questions correctly. And I think you're on the first step to a healthy, productive conversation. Wonderful. And that that is so important because sometimes I think our egos just get in the way and it's like, no, I'm going to do this. And, you know, they need to hear me. And it's like, well, if it's not really going to matter, you've worked yourself up into a tather and 
and now they're on the defensive or maybe not, maybe they're just like, Oh, there she goes again. (laughs) And that can work against you too. Well, exactly. That I think sometimes we just feel like, I want to get it off my chest. Let them know how I really feel. Well, that may be good for your blood pressure, but not for the relationship, not for the results you're looking for. So it's got to be more than just good for me. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading something on Facebook and it was a woman in her seventies and she had a whole list about letting go and it's just not worth it. And I, I might disagree, but I'll tell them they're doing a great job because compliments are good for, for both of us. Yes. It, you know, it feels good to give a compliment and it feels good to get a, comp- a compliment. And she felt doing that built the relationship um, up versus tearing it, tearing it apart a little bit more, which is kind of interesting because I mean, I think we've all received compliments too that aren't that we feel aren't authentic either. <laughs> and then that doesn't do so well. Um, well, let's talk about these these tough conversations because typically when you do decide, okay, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna address this. People show up defensively. The person who's who's calling, you know, this is really, you know, on the offense and they've got their plan of attack. And I will say plan of attack because that's kind of where they're coming from. And the other people are going, oh, here we go again. And they got their battle gear on, you know, trying to trying to block things. And there's such a feeling of distrust or people are, you know, the person being pulled in, they feel like they're going to be railroaded and they're not going to be heard. What do you do to decrease all of that? Because it's hard to have a comfortable conversation in that environment. Very true. I, I wish somebody would invent <laughs> a, a box that would get strapped in front of your mouth, inside of which are filters. And so when you speak, what comes out is filtered. Nobody gets hurt or defensive. They hear you out. Uh, we don't have that invention on the market. but. I've created a list of six filtering questions I suggest that people use. If you will take one minute, maybe two minutes to think before you speak, go through the six questions. What will come out will be productive, constructive, and they'll tend to listen, not get defensive. And so how you phrase it is critical. So let me suggest the filters if that's okay. Sure. First filter you ask yourself before you say anything critical. Are you giving the criticism to really help the other person? Uh, In other words, if they feel like you're on the attack, trying to get them, pull them down to hurt them, they're bound to get defensive. They're bound to counterattack. There are books out with titles like Looking Out for Number One and uh, Winning Through Intimidation. Well, they may be good for your blood pressure, but not for the relationship. If the other person knows you're trying to help them, they tend to listen, not get defensive. Example that comes to mind when I was a brand new professor. I had one professor that come in the back of my classroom and watch me teach, watch me lecture. He gave me pages of critiques of what he didn't like about what I was doing, how I could improve. But I could listen and not get defensive because I knew it was for my benefit. It was 20 years my senior, great at what he did. Students loved him. And if people know you're trying to help them instead of hurt them, they'll tend to listen. That's the first question you ask yourself. It filters out a lot of garbage. 
That that's a really good point um, because we've all been in those situations of, oh, here they go again. I can't do anything right. You know, it's just like they must be having a bad day, and and you know they picked me to to vent on. And um, but yeah, when someone when someone really stages it that they're there to help and and improve things, it does make a big difference because then they're building that team effort right up front. Yeah, it's not me against you, mm-hmm. us against the problem, the situation. Yep. Second filtering question, then asking yourself is can the person actually change the behavior you're criticizing? Can they actually change that behavior? It's easy when we're ticked off to say, ah, you're darn right, they could change it if they really wanted to. Not always. Telling somebody this is not good enough may not be enough to bring about change in their behavior. In addition to the feedback, they might need some coaching, some training, some encouragement, some help, some understanding. If they can't change, all we do is take them from possible motivation to demotivation and possibly counterattack. Are they able to change? I remember in one of my workshops, a woman saying, yeah, I know what you mean. And I could tell she is, had been hurt, not trying to be kinky or weird, but she said on several occasions, her husband told her he didn't like her, her physical shape. Mm-hmm shape of her bosom, to be quite specific. <laughs> I thought to myself, the stupid husband. Does he know what he's done? She will never forget that feedback. Whenever she's changing clothes, whatever, going to feel judged, put down, not good enough. You don't give feedback on things that people typically do not or cannot change. But if you think they could change, you've answered the second question appropriately that they tend to listen, not get defensive. Can the person actually change the behavior? Yeah, I, I found that if um, if you come in from an emotional aspect of why it needs to be changed, where, where it touches them on a heart level, not a head level. Um, and I use the example of, uh, you know, and I, I was never a smoker or anything, but a lot of people quit smoking because their kids came home from school going, hey, Yes. This is dangerous. You shouldn't be doing that or, or wearing seatbelts. It, it started kind of with the kindergartners, you know, in my opinion, that movement for some major changes of people going, I want to be around for this, you know. Exactly. You've got it. Turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the way showers who will help your journey a lot easier. The third question you ask yourself, the third filtering question, you go through your mind first before you open your mouth. Is this fairly new information? Is it fairly new information? 
In other words, if you tell someone the same piece of negative feedback over and over again, you become a nag. And the more you say it, the more they keep doing it just to get you. It's like parents will often complain their kids have messy bedrooms. And they'll tell their kids over and over again, your room looks like a pig pen. Looks like a pig pen. Looks like a pig pen. And the kids go, oink. (laughs) (laughs) They don't do anything because they've learned something interesting. And that is, it doesn't bother us what the room looks like, could care less. But now that we see it bothers you, it gives us power to ruin your day, to frustrate you, to get a bigger allowance down the line. Now, maybe as mom or dad or boss or caretaker, you can make me do it in the long run. But in the short run, I'm in control. Is it fairly new information? Well, that's a great point. I, I hear that with my, my daughter and her daughter. Is that power struggle? What? What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, it's not a big deal. And it just drives my daughter, you know, crazy. And it's it is, it's just a total I mean I can I can see my granddaughter kind of smile as she walks away after she got yelled at, you know, like, yep, got her. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it'd be like in a performance review in a business situation. If the boss came to you, and right now we're recording this in the month of July, but if your boss were to say, you know, as we talk about this performance review, let's begin by that situation you were involved with last February. You're going to think, what? You waited five, six months to tell me this? That feels so unfair. So is it fairly new information? That's the third filtering question. That's wonderful too. These are these are just fantastic um, insights to give people when they're having these tough conversations. So p- please, please go ahead. Hey. The fourth question you need to ask yourself uh, is the timing right? Is the timing right when it comes to a tough conversation? Most people speak when they have the time to speak or the guts to speak. That is not the best time. By asking yourself, is the timing right? Are they in good shape to hear it? Maybe the person you're speaking to has had a horrible day with the person that they're caring for physically. Maybe a coworker's had their computer program crash. Maybe a person lost one of their best accounts. Maybe the last thing they can handle is another piece of negative feedback. If they're not in good shape to hear it, they simply tune you out or maybe attack you. So people say to me, well, Dr. Zimmerman, how do I know if they're in good shape? I'm not a psychologist like you. You do what's called mood sampling. Mood sampling might be as simple as saying, um, Lori, got a problem to talk to you about. Would would this be a good time? Not right now. No. (laughs) That would be a cue to back (laughs) off. But you might say, yeah, what's on your mind? Check it out. Because you don't know. Now, I realize some of you have family members, especially in Alzheimer's situations, but in any situation where they never want to talk about the problem. That's your problem. Don't give me your garbage. I don't talk about it. I'm suggesting you give negative feedback by permission only. That's a weird concept. Most people don't follow it. People say, well, you're saying, is the timing right? But they never give me permission to talk. What do you do? What you do if you don't get permission is give them a feeling impact statement. Feeling impact statement might sound like this. 
I can't make you listen to me. I can't make you talk to me. I can't make you negotiate. But I want you to know the feelings I'm having and the impact on our relationship this is having as a result of us not talking about it. It may be we're growing closer or further apart, uh, uh, less likely to get promoted in this job. In other words, some people are naive enough to think if we don't talk about it, it'll just magically disappear, the ostrich syndrome. Life doesn't work that way. So if you give them a feeling impact statement, a lot of people say, well, okay, let's talk about it. They'll give you a grudging permission, which is what you need to make sure that the timing is right to talk about it. Well, and that that's wonderful because people, and I see this more and more where people like, no, not going there. I mean, it, it seems like we're in this black and white state of what we're willing to talk about or what we're willing to believe. And the door to open communication seems harder these days. And I don't know if it's just me, but that's kind of what I perceive in the world and what I, what I'm hearing from friends too, where people are, are stopping relationships. I mean, they're just cutting them off because they're not having these uncomfortable conversations, which is really sad. It is. And there is a way to have a better tough conversation than simply destroy the relationship and cut people off. Mm-hmm. I'm saying if you do these filtering questions, you'll have a lot more success. It'll work more often. Wow. Now, was there one more that you no, wanted to go? Two more. Two more. Yep. Next one is, are you willing to involve the other person in the discussion? Are willing to involve them? In other words, to tell somebody, okay, you gave me permission to talk. I don't like this, this, and this. Fix this and that. And you walk off. That is not a tough conversation. That's the hit and run. That's revenge. In other words, after you've given the feedback, are you willing to say such things as, well, what are you hearing? How do you feel about that? How could we resolve this? What's the next step? You bring them into the conversation. You involve them. You don't just lay it on them and walk off. Critical. So it becomes two-way, not a one-way put down of somebody else's behavior. Yeah, I, I like when you said that kind of hit and run, because to me, a conversation is a two-way conversation. But I've, I've also met people in my life where I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to get in a fight. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's just, it's just I mean, I grew up where we talk about everything. But there are a lot of people where they didn't have these conversations that to me are really, really simple. They're not even a tough conversation, but they grew up. You don't talk about that. And so it became a tough conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And we've created a culture where more and more things are off limits. You can't talk about sex, religion, politics, or whatever. And some of the most important issues in life that should be discussed, that includes a relative that's got Alzheimer's. All those tough conversations need to be talked about. Doesn't mean they're going to be comfortable, but they can be productive. Yeah, I I think by having these conversations, I mean, to me, it really takes the scary out of it because there's so much to learn uh, from all sides. And if you go in and approach it, you know, in that manner, um, you know, but I guess I I just have a personality where I'm always looking at how do you make the best of a situation, though I know I've gotten feedback from my siblings that no, you're a control freak, you know, and I'm like, no, I'm organized. You know, we, we kind of go down that path of what am I? So I know I don't always come off the way I maybe think I do 
either. And you, you've got to be conscious of all of that and be willing to open the next door if they've got something, you know, to say. I'll just give you a little bit of feedback on that situation, that example you gave. When people are into semantics, you're Mm -hmm. a control freak, no, I'm organized. Mm -hmm. Get past the labels because you all have different meanings for the words. Mm -hmm. Give me a specific behavior that you find difficult, and let's see what we can do about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we kind of laughed at our labeling, you know, because I said, well, you know, it was it was fine when I when I wasn't asking to pull you in, then it was okay, Lori can deal with it. But when I'm asking for help, now all of a sudden it's something else. And you know, we ended up having a good laugh and a really good talk. And it opened my eyes that I was probably trying to be more controlling than what I thought I was. And that what I really needed, you know, to help with with both my mom and my dad was I needed them. I needed their relationships in with my mom and dad. My mom and dad deserved them in, in this circle. You know, I wasn't enough. Um, as, as good of care as I was giving them, it wasn't enough. It, it, they needed that diversity. Yes. And I think family shut down on that um, easily on that. And, you know, I, I guess I unconsciously wanted little clones of me, you know, come on just do it like I do it, you know, show up, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, we have very different personalities. We show up in different ways and we feed those relationships in different ways. And so getting to realize what everybody is good at and allowing that to come out. Well, that's a perfect segue to the last of the six filtering questions. I'm saying you ask yourself these questions first before you speak. And the last question is, what does the other person need the most, praise or criticism? And you see, everybody has a bowl of self-esteem. And when you criticize somebody and say, not good enough, don't like this, don't like that, you're taking away what little self-esteem they have, couldn't change if they wanted to. What some people need is someone like you to say, I think you can do this. I believe in you. That's a step in the right direction. As you put things in their self-esteem bowl, they change your behavior. Because psychology teaches us we perform exactly as we see ourselves. See ourselves more positively, perform more effectively. Other people you interact with need some guidance. That's what good negative feedback does. It guides us to a better way. What about this approach or that approach? And if you guess right, do they need praise or criticism? The results are exactly the same. They change their behavior. So go through those six questions in your mind. Take that minute. Take those two minutes. Answer the questions. If you get a green light, you're ready to open your mouth and say something in terms of confronting the other person. Well, you know, what I love what we're talking about here, Alan, is, and I've always said this, and it's kind of a saying in in the world of dementia, that what's good for dementia is good for all of the world and all of your life. And what you're teaching us today is applicable at work, at home, with our kids, our grandkids, our neighbors, uh, a little bit of everything, you know, I mean, there's just no limit to it. So, uh, and I think sometimes we limit ourselves and go, okay, well, this is just for that. And it's like, no, it's so much greater and so much more profound. So, For people who are just tuning in, you know, we are talking with Dr. Alan Zimmerman, 
And um, we are just having a wonderful conversation. He's given us so many tips already on how to how to prepare and how to decide if you want to even have a tough conversation with somebody or are you just going to shelf it because it's not worth it. Um, you can always go to Alan's website, which is drzimmerman.com. Um, and he is on LinkedIn and Twitter, uh, easily accessible. Again, he is um, just a phenomenal speaker and trainer. He's in the top 5% of all speakers around the world. So you're going to want to reel back if you're just popping into this conversation right now. So Alan, I want to talk to you about, because offline you had mentioned about, you know, leveling the other person's unacceptable behavior. And, And that whole unacceptable behavior is always quite the term too, because nobody wants to be told, A, that they have a behavior because that's not a good thing. And, you know, then we're adding unacceptable on top of it. It's like, go in the corner, put on the hat, and I'll tell you when you can come out, I mean, is what we think. And so, you know, what are some techniques that can really help us try to change that? Well, hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform. Yeah. So you've gone to the filtering question to decide, yep, I need to confront the other person. You have that right if their behavior is unacceptable. And there are three things that make their behavior unacceptable and worthy of discussion. The first one is whatever they're doing, it is is observable. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can confront someone not showing up for work on time. That's observable, coming in late. You can confront someone for agreeing to take care of mom on a particular shift when it comes to Alzheimer's and a person doesn't follow through. That's observable. What you cannot confront is an attitude. You can't read someone's mind. That will get you in trouble. There's a big difference between saying, when you come to work 10 minutes late, and saying, when you don't care enough to show up on time. That second one will get you into big trouble because they know you can't read their mind and you have no right to read their mind. So the first thing is it has to be observable, whatever you're going to confront. Secondly, you have a feeling of dis-ease, discomfort. Something doesn't fit. It doesn't feel right. Now, we're living in a time when feelings seem to be everything. It is a portion of the decision. It is not the whole decision. I tell all my clients, coaching clients, et cetera, your feelings get a vote in your decision. They do not get a veto. Just because you don't feel like it, it's not good enough not to do it. Just because you feel like doing it, it's not good enough to go ahead and do it. So you have your feelings saying something doesn't feel right. There's the disease. You see something observable. And thirdly, there's a cost involved in their behavior. And time, money, energy. Maybe it costs the family harmony. Maybe it costs the team not getting their job done on time. If there's no cost involved, you can confront somebody, but they're not going to care. Why should they care? Just because you don't like it and you can see it, but it costs nobody anything. They won't listen to you. You have no credibility. So you have to have all three things there for you to have the right to open your mouth and confront them. That behavior is unacceptable. 
it's so interesting when you said um so you don't like it you know it's like i could just hear those words rolling off you know i don't really care <laughs> you know i mean i've i've seen people react that way it's it's like you know not my problem that's your problem that's how you're feeling you know um and there there just seems to be i don't know to me I, are you feeling a lack of 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 team effort these days i mean it just seems like teams are kind of melting away they don't uh, you know i'm like i'm 64 and when i was younger i mean if somebody needed help in our neighborhood anybody at any age would run over and cut the grass, shovel the snow, bring a meal, you know, just check in. And that seems to have dissolved. And I, and I'm hearing that from the business end too. And part of it, I think is because of the turnover is happening so quickly. It's hard to, you know, build those relationships um, with high turnover, but are you sensing that as well? Absolutely. Um, This is a big statement, but we move from being a child to an adult. We move from thinking about what I want, what I feel like, to putting into my perspective, how does that impact other people? That is missing more and more. There's been a lot of research out showing about the increase of rudeness and selfishness in American culture, personally and in the business world. And that's why when I talk about what makes behavior unacceptable, You've got to show the cost of that behavior because they're just thinking about me. So what if you don't like it? You have to show them the cost. It costs the company something. It costs your relationship something. There's got to be a cost somewhere because I think our culture is becoming a bit more immature. Instead of having more perspective about how does my behavior impact everybody else? We can call it emotional intelligence, social intelligence. We can call it maturity. But I think there's a trend towards immaturing in our culture to think about me more than how I affect other people. All of that has to be a part of the equation. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. Um, And I think it's just become so prevalent. And I remember when the kids were younger, you know, the joke was, oh, it's the me generation, you know, but it's not just that generation. It's all generations that this is just kind of melded over to is what I'm I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge change in our culture when compromise and negotiation used to be considered healthy professional terms. Now we talk about that as all wrong, whether it's religion or politics or morals or anything else, no compromise, no negotiation. And uh, it's not the way societies tend to grow. Yeah, I guess I've seen where, um, you know, to me, a lot of the micromanaging broke down the teams and the creativity and the inputs, and then people just started shutting down and and not caring. It's just like, now you've made it just a job to me because the open door isn't really open anymore. Well, let's say in terms of this unacceptable behavior, you've decided that their behavior indeed fits the definition that I've given you. Behavior is unacceptable. Then here's how I'd suggest you level them, level with them, confront them. There's four parts in the statement. The first one is your feeling. You describe what you're feeling. I feel upset, concerned, worried, angry. And the neat thing about the formula I'm going to give you, 
nobody can argue with you. These are all non-debatable statements. So let's say we take the example of a person's coming in late at work. Might say, I, I feel annoyed. They can't say, you don't feel annoyed. How silly. Only you know what you feel. I feel worried, concerned, whatever the feeling is. Starts with, I feel. The second part is describing the behavior you see. I feel annoyed when you come in 10 minutes late. That's observable behavior. You can see them walking in 10 minutes past their appointed time. They can't argue with that. They can't say I'm at 10 minutes late. That's stupid. They know the exact time they're supposed to be there. They can read a clock. So again, you're putting out facts that cannot be debated. The third part is a cost of their behavior. We're using our whole example again, I feel annoyed, the feeling. When you come 10 minutes late, that's the behavior you're seeing. And the cost is everybody on the team has to wait until you show up before we start our progress on that software program. There's a cost, whatever it might be. And again, they can't say, nobody has to wait. There are certain procedures, protocols, whatever the cost is. You point out a cost. And the last part is, and I want. What do I want you to do? I want you to show up from now on, on time, ready to work at the appointed time. Now, they may not like it, but there's nothing they can argue with. Where yeah. people, Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, from a from a family standpoint, that showing up late or not showing up at all, kind of those shift changes or, hey, it was your turn to to make a meal or do laundry or now somebody else has to pick it up. Um, you know, falls right in line with with all of that. And again, it's it's so succinct. Um, these are just amazing, amazing tips. Well, the unfortunate thing is we are human beings that are going to have tough situations. We'll need tough conversations. But I suspect most of our viewers today have never been taught any of this. They kind of wing it. They saw what their mom or dad did. Uh, they hope it works out, but uh, you know the old slang, hope is not a strategy. These are strategies. <laughs> well, how nice would this be if this was taught in schools, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. It just, I, it could get rid of so many issues on so many levels. You know, how do we ask for for what we need in a way that it, it'll we'll actually get it, you know? I mean, you gave us some strategies there and and which sound wonderful, but is there anything else you can add to that? Or is it this equation that you think just really nails it down? Well, I'm going to take it a little bit further for you. The last part, when I said, when you level somebody, you say, I feel when you, because of this cost and I want. So how do you ask that wanting part? And this is critical because what the research says only 10% of people specifically ask for what they want and need. They beat around the bush, drop little hints, tell somebody else, but going face-to-face saying, Lori, will you do this? About 10%. And people make up all kinds of excuses. Well, I shouldn't have to ask. They should just know. Oh, my gosh. That's so common. Yeah. <laughs> oh, stupid. You're saying you can show your care, your love by having ESP. No. You show your concern by being open with each other. Quit playing games. 
Yeah, that that is so true. And people just take it for granted or they'll say, I've asked a zillion times, but they really haven't asked right. a zillion the, times. They've complained, but they really haven't asked. Yes. So I give you six guidelines for how you ask, and then I give you a little phraseology, how do you say it? First, when you ask, you got to be direct. No hinting, no beating around the bush. Mm-hmm. Let's say the example we've been using about coming to a staff meeting on time. And people know the meeting's 8 o'clock and they come at 8.04, 8.07, 8.08. And someone says, it sure would be nice to show up on time. That's not asking. That's begging. Asking would be as simple as, Bill, Mary, will you please be here at 8 o'clock sharp at the next meeting? I'm not saying be aggressive, abrasive, just be direct. When you do that, follow through increases about five, ten times. Be direct. Wow. Secondly, be specific. Exactly what do you want? Telling somebody, will you give me that report later this week? What does that mean? Or will you help more with dad's care? That means nothing. People read a million interpretations into that. Be specific. And so um, it might be, will you give me two hours per week? of helping care for mom on Thursdays. That's specific. What exactly? Be direct, be specific. The third thing is respectful. When we finish being a teenager, most of us hate being told what to do. We're adults. Don't tell me what to do. So respectful is asking rather than telling. When you start ordering people around, commanding, I expect you'd better do this, expect a fight. Be respectful, which means put it into a question form, not a command form. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire, become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio. Oh, that's interesting. A question versus a command. Because I think it's just so easy just to roll that off. I want you to, because that's what we've done, especially with our kids all our lives or our siblings. I mean, that's kind of how we've talked to one another a lot of times um, in our relationships. Yeah. And it just feels more adult-like, respectful-like to ask. You're hoping they say yes, of course. Mm -hmm. But if you ask and they say yes, the follow-through will be a great deal stronger. Well, and they'll be committed. Yeah. Yeah. Because because they've answered instead of, oh, I have, I have to, they're going to show up totally different um, in terms of buying into what the need is. And the fourth guideline is a biggie, and that is positive. In other words, you expect them to say yes to your question, your request. Expect them. Just like a kid coming to your house selling candy bars for a school band project. Mm-hmm. They say, you wouldn't want to buy a candy bar, would you? And it's easy to say no, and they move on. By contrast, if you go to somebody at home, a relative, a coworker, and say, oh, I know what they're going to say. They're always a pain in the butt. They're always going to say no. They give me a hassle. It's not going to work. 
they read those vibes and say no a lot more often. Expect them to say yes. I uh, love the story of the Girl Scout selling cookies. We had a prize a while ago. The Girl Scout has sold the most cookies in the U.S. on a trip for her entire family around the world, all expenses paid. Amazing one, a little girl in Harlem, which is a poor place. You wouldn't think you'd sell the most cookies in a poor place. They interviewed her, master salesperson, master question asker. She'd knock on the door and say, thank you for answering. My name is Melissa. I'm selling cookies here in the neighborhood. I'm a Girl Scout. But more importantly, I want you to know this. I got a wonderful mom. Takes care of my brothers and sisters and me for years. I have no dad. She works two jobs, seven days a week for us kids. I sell the most cookies. I take her on a trip. I'm just curious. Would you like five or six cases today? (laughs) (laughs) I'll take seven. (laughs) She had no doubt that they would say yes. And they said yes. So go into that relative. Go into that coworker and expect them to say yes. Yeah, give them a reason. Give them a reason to say yes. But yeah. they, they can tell your demeanor, your facial expressions, your tone of voice. You expect them to say yes. That you're yeah. happy. Oh, that's incredible. And you, you wonder where she learned that, if it was just her family, you know, because that, that is not a common, a common thing for kids. No. It's not a common thing for adults, you know. Yeah. <laughs> We tend to think, oh, I just know they're going to be a pain. They're going to be a problem. I know what they're going to say. We put all those negative vibes out there. They read them and they follow through and do it. Yep. Well, and I'm glad you brought up, you know, just kind of the the nonverbals that we exude that we don't even know we're doing a lot of times. I think that's another kind of problem in the world as a whole is we're not we're not reading how we're contributing to a situation. So true. So I gave you four guidelines for asking effectively, five and six. Fifth one is polite. Mm -hmm. It's like please and thank you are not outdated. Mm -hmm. Please, thank you. I would appreciate. And the sixth guideline is um, firm. In other words, if you mentioned the nonverbal, if you got your eyes down and your shoulders are drooping and and you're hesitant in your voice to say, well, I really hate to ask you, and I know you're awfully busy, and I hate to bother you. Think it to feel like, yeah, bug off, leave me alone. I believe you as an adult have a right to ask, and they have the right to say no, of course, in many situations. But be firm. Don't look hesitant or apologetic. Wonderful. Now, if all of this fails, what the heck do we do then? <laughs> well, hopefully they're going to say yes. If they say no, two, three things I suggest where you can push people to go along with you. One is take a look at your way of communicating with them. All of us on this call, this television program, you and me included, we're all teachers. We're teaching people to follow our lead or to avoid us. So what are you teaching them to do? For example, I had a boss years ago who was technically wonderful. He won national awards nine of 10 years in a row. As a boss, he was horrible. He would swear at people, be disrespectful, slam a door in your face. We'd have staff meetings. He'd say, you people aren't very close to me in this department. And we go, (laughs) (laughs) he taught us to avoid him as much as possible. So what I'm asking is a very humbling question. Look at your style. Are you teaching people? to come towards you, to follow your example, to 
be a part of what you're suggesting? Are you pushing them away? You're doing one of two. Ask yourself a humbling question. Instead of pointing your finger at them, look at yourself for a moment. Teach them to avoid certain behaviors, not to avoid you. That's fantastic. And I think it's one of those things that um, so many people avoid looking inward. It's just easier to blame somebody else. Exactly. The second one is immediately correct the behavior you don't like. Mm -hmm. You're seeing a relative not helping and care. Coworker not doing their share of the work. Whatever the situation, don't wait for the formal review at work to come up six weeks later. Don't wait for the family meeting two months later. Immediately deal with it. The longer you wait to correct something, the less successful you'll be. I used to be a reform school counselor. My first job, I worked in prison therapy. And we know there's a huge amount of people that go to prison and get back out and go back in again. But if you immediately correct the behavior, behavior changes. So the example I gave you before, if it's performance review and I say, uh, Lori, I don't like what you did last February, you're going to think, what, five, six months? But if I sat down with you that very day and said, you know, Lori, this is not working very well. Let's sit and talk for a moment. You know what I'm talking about. No misunderstanding. Immediately correct it. And this works great with kids. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I'm one of my little kids. I had these dreams of going on vacation and being like the Walton family saying, good night, John boy. Good night, Ellen girl. And all this warmth and closeness. We'd be in a car for five minutes and all hitting and fighting and screaming and wish we hadn't <laughs> gone on vacation. And then I learned this technique. We took our kids to Wisconsin Dells years ago, tourist trap, first place storybook gardens. Kids were fighting, hitting, screaming within minutes. My wife said, forget this, we're going home, end of vacation. The kids all said, please, please, we'll be good, we'll be good, don't, 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 we'll be good. Kids always say that when they're in trouble, try to beg themselves out of it. We told the kids this, we're going back to the hotel room. You got two hours to figure out how to behave. If you can't figure it out, we're going home, end of vacation. My wife and I, we took a walk, came back two hours later. She'll see the kids the rest of the week. Oh, this is so fun, Kelly. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, dad, good idea. Oh, mom, this is really neat. In other words, let them work it out. Immediately deal with it. Don't wait until later. It works wonderfully. Well, you get the buy-in from them, and you allow them the creativity of how to do that, let their voice be heard, uh, which I think is so, so, so critical. Um, that was a, that's a, a great uh, example as well, because it happens all the time. The other thing, by delaying it, now you're allowing them to repeat what they think is a good process over and over, so then it's even harder to break too. <laughs> yeah, it goes right along with this third guideline. If they're not going along with you, make them responsible for improving the situation. Put the monkey on their back. I think we as caregivers, as parents, as managers work way too hard to get people to help us out sometimes. Put the monkey on their back. Let them figure it out. I had a manager tell me this. He had an employee that was always coming in late. He had talked to the guy several times, docked his pay, tried several things. Nothing worked. Call the guy, come in the office, sit down. Guy came in the office, sat down. Boss said, take your shoes off. Employee did. Boss said, exchange shares. They exchanged shares. The employee said, what's the stupid game? He said, exchange shares. He said, put your feet in my shoes. Employee said, what? Put your feet in my shoes. And he did. 
The boss said to the employee, you're not in the boss's shoes. You got the employee comes in late all the time. You've tried everything. Nothing works. You're not in the boss's shoes. It's now your problem. You don't leave the office. You solve the problem. The guy said, what? He knew he was talking about. He said, well, I sit there for three minutes or three hours eyeballing him. He eventually sweats, squirms, figures out a solution. He picks one out. He has ownership. He follows through. It works beautifully. Put the monkey on their back. Make him responsible. Oh, I, lo- I love that. I had a, a boss that had a rule, that, and, and I live by this to this day. If you, have, if you have an issue, a complaint, something you want changed, she said, my door is always open. But when you walk through, have two options of how to fix it. I'm not going to guarantee I'm going to take one. But I want to know, you know, you're the one seeing it and identifying it. So come in with some options because you you probably will have the best ideas because you're familiar with the situation. And I thought that was brilliant. And the last thing I would say is if nothing's working, positively reinforce what you like, ignore what you don't like. Explain that. Reinforce what you like, ignore what you don't. Karen Pryor writes a book called Don't Shoot the Dog. And her mom was her greatest friend. Got along beautifully, funny, charming, etc. Her mom got ill and spent next 10 years in a nursing home. During that time, her personality changed. She would call her daughter three times a day. You don't love me. Stuck me in the nursing home. Nobody cares. I'm lonely. You call this thanks. And Karen would say, Mom, I love you a lot. You need special care. This is the best place. I come to see you three times a week. We talk every day. Despite the fact she would calmly answer all of that, mom would call her and rip her apart, rip her apart, month after month, until Karen said, I couldn't take it anymore. But I decided to try this technique. The next time mom called, and every time afterwards, I started saying, you don't love me, nobody cares. She would simply say, oh, I see. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh-huh. Her mom said anything positive, like, how are the grandkids? Or nice day out. Karen reinforced that, yes, it is beautiful outside. Glad you asked about the grandkids are doing wonderfully. And she writes in her book, I wouldn't have believed it. Within two months, her mother changed her behavior pattern in the last 10 years. And the next several years, she was once again this caring, thoughtful, charming person. The reason it works is something called the three R's in psychology. Reinforced responses recur. In other words, mom was being nasty before, and mom responded, oh, that's right. Oh, no, no, Karen would say, it's not true. In other words, mom pulled the strings, and Karen danced. But now she reinforced the positive things, and mom moved in that direction. I've seen that technique work over and over again with the most difficult people I can imagine. And it's a pretty good time for about two months of consistent reinforcement. And they start moving in that direction. Wow, that's... um... That's really neat. And I think everybody wants to be engaged and feel purposeful. And when you kind of flatline on those, those others, it's like, well, yeah, but yet you're validating what she's saying, you know, you're not arguing about it. Um, But really, yeah, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. So much of this, I mean, makes so much sense. It should be, it should be common sense to us all. But again, it's not because we get in the heat of the moment, we get exhausted. And we just, we just want to push our way through it and we want easy answers and big, big issues don't have easy answers. Even little issues don't always have easy answers. The good news is we do have some processes that we know work. 
And I really hope people will take this to heart. I even know some executives who have taken several of the points I've made. They put them on a piece of paper. They have it on the pull-up shelf of their desk and glance at it before they confront an employee to make sure they're doing it right. <laughs> that well, that's it? smart. You know, it's they're not going to know. And it, if it if it guides you and makes you feel more comfortable in what you're doing, that's what matters with that. Right. So, yeah, well, this has just been absolutely fantastic. I, I appreciate your time today, Alan. Again, for our listeners, we've been talking with Dr. Alan Zimmerman, and we have been uh, getting just a ton of techniques to have difficult conversations, uh, which definitely arise when you are dealing with any type of life from if it's your kids or grandkids, or if you're dealing with dementia and aging and illness, or if you're at work with your boss or your colleagues or your neighbors, um, all of these things can apply So um, I always ask our audience to please share these episodes with their friends because you don't know in your circle who's dealing with what because we don't talk about this stuff. And yet we need to somehow disseminate this information where it's comfortable for them to grab when they're ready. So I urge you to like, click and share. Again, for me, it's not about the numbers. It's really about connecting people to services, products, tools and techniques that'll help them in life. And, um, you know, so just be a giver of hope, take a couple of seconds, not going to cost you any money, take very little time. And you might be really surprised at who thanks you for passing this along. So again, Alan, thank you. People can reach out to you on your website at drzimmerman.com. He is on uh, LinkedIn, also on Twitter. Uh, do you want me to give out email or phone number or do you want them just to go through the website? I'll give you, I'm quite accessible, actually. I have a newsletter that goes out to 100,000 people every Tuesday called Dr. Zimmerman's Tuesday Tip. I've been doing that for 20 years. It's free of charge to anybody. All you have to do is email me, Alan, A-L-A-N, at D-R Zimmerman or Alan at drzimmerman.com and just put subscribe. I'll make sure you get that website has over a thousand articles that you can have access to uh, access to for free of charge. And uh, I really want to be of help to people. So if you want to email me a question, I promise I'll get back to you quickly. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, so accommodating and, and just such a wealth of information. Um, again, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for taking this time with us today. To our audience, you know, we will see you next week. And uh, again, don't forget to pass this information along. Thank you. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.